Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us up to the mountaintop. Lord, we have seen in the Bible that you meet your people on the mountain. And we have come before you today with open hearts, with humility, asking that you will show yourself to us. And that as a result, as a result of our encounter with you, we might surrender our all to you. And that more importantly than that, we might become like you. And so as we begin this session here, as we open your word, teach us, speak to us, and may the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I, we write on a personal finance blog, and as you can imagine, we like to save money. Perhaps the better word is that we're cheap. <laughs> I wear that with a badge of honor. So, this weekend, what weekend is it? It's SWYC, but it's also Labor Day weekend. So, if you're like me, your email inbox is being filled up with Labor Day sales, right? Home Depot, come in, 40% off, all appliances, no money down. It's a season for shopping, and every holiday now in the United States seems to be attached to some form of consumer activity. Black Friday, right? That's the biggest one. But I want to tell you a story. This happened in the city of Geneva in the year 2015. Geneva, Switzerland, 2015. A Hong Kong billionaire, okay, so a billionaire from Hong Kong was at an auction, and he set a world record for purchasing the most expensive diamond in history by carat. He purchased a rare 12.03 carat blue moon diamond for a record 48.5 million dollars, 48 and a half million dollars for a blue rock, but that's not all. The day before, across town in Geneva also, this same billionaire from Hong Kong was at another auction. This time, he bought a 16.08 carat pink diamond, and this one he only spent $28.5 million. So in the matter of two days, this man spent $77 million for a blue rock and a pink rock. But here's the punchline of the story. Guess who he bought those diamonds for? His wife? Yeah. It was for his seven-year-old daughter. I have a little girl. She better not get any ideas. But I like your reaction. Because you, in your mind's eye, you can already envision what's going to happen when dad gets home. Hey, sweetheart, you wouldn't believe what I got you. Look at this. Over the shoulder, ping, ping, and she's back to playing with her plastic toys from Walmart or the thrift store. But your reaction is telling because the gasp, the horror, the shock, that's exactly what I wanted you to feel. Because, yeah, $77 million, I don't care how shiny, how beautiful those diamonds are, it's extravagance. It's unnecessary. It's a waste, right? Were these purchases worth it? From our perspective, as Bible-believing Christians, understanding that there is a world to warn and a heaven to win and a hell to shun and a soon coming of Jesus Christ and millions and billions of people who have not heard the gospel are these purchases worth it? No. But I'm here to tell you that biblically speaking, 
according to the Bible, sometimes extravagant purchases like this indeed are right. Sometimes they are appropriate. Sometimes extravagant purchases indeed are biblical. How do I know? Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and the clue that I gave you was in the title of our message this morning, Shopping for Pearls. We're going to begin reading in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 13. We're just going to read two verses. We're just going to digest. We're just going to drill deep into these two verses, verse 45 and 46, the parable of the pearl of great price. And perhaps at the end of our Bible study together, we will see how this story ties in with the theme of surrender for our weekend together. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 45, the Bible says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we read this story, and we think, yeah, I've heard this before. I've read in Christ's object lessons. Yeah, that's nice. But let's pause a moment. Let's think about this. This merchant man that Jesus is talking about, for one pearl, how much of his net worth did he spend? He spent all of it. What percent is that? 100%. So at the end of this transaction, how much of his net worth was left? Zero. Okay, listen carefully. So let's go back to our Chinese or Hong Kong billionaire. And let's just for sake of argument, let's say he was only, he was a small billionaire, okay? If there is such a thing. He only had $1 billion. Okay, that's the minimum. You must have just at least $1 billion to be considered a billionaire, right? So let's just say he only had $1 billion. He spent $77 million for those two diamonds. How much money does he have left? Some of you are really quick on the draw with your math, but I actually calculated it, so uh, let's just make sure we got this right. He would have $923 million left. $923 million left. At a billion dollars, when he spent 77 million, that was only 7.7% of his net worth. And that's that's if he only had 1 billion. So what am I trying to say? We hear the story of such an extravagant purchase, but was it really a sacrifice for that man? 7.7% of the net worth? For those of us in this room, that's maybe a couple hundred, maybe at most a couple thousand dollars. But the Bible tells us the story. Jesus uses this illustration of a man who who sold 100% for one pearl. So what is Jesus trying to tell us? If we look at such a worldly case as this Hong Kong billionaire and we say, Whoa, that's extravagant. That's going too far. That's crossed a line. That's extravagance. But Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. There's something worth far more than that. And it's called the pearl of great price. So let's, let's take a look at this story. What can we learn from this story? Let's go back to verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. So who is this person? Notice the language that's being used. It's not a window shopper. It's not someone laying in bed at night, not able to sleep, browsing Amazon on their smartphone. This was not just someone who had money burning a hole in his pocket and wondering, how can I spend this money on myself? The Bible uses the term merchant 
man. He's a businessman. He's an investor. He's an intelligent individual who is looking for some way to advance his financial position. And he's looking for pearls. There is an intentionality to what he's doing. So contrasting, this was not a man who was moved by impulse. This was not a man who accidentally, accidentally stumbled upon a pearl and just out of gut reaction, not having control over his credit card, he accidentally purchased and sold all that he had. It was not that kind of a man. It was not by accident. He was not coming home that day and saying to his wife, Oh, (laughs) sorry, sweetheart, Uh, you wouldn't believe what I did today. He went out with an intentional desire to obtain something. He was a man who had done his research, done his homework. He's counted the cost. He understood value. He'd done this investigation, his research, his study. So let me use an example. How many of you have ever bought a car or a house or even a computer? Big purchases, thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollar purchases. And would you ever walk onto, let's say, a car dealership and say, just give me whatever you got. Sell me the first one that you got. Doesn't matter. Nobody would do that. You know how that would work, right? Before you buy the car, you're going to be pounding the keyboard. Craigslist. Blue Book Value, Consumer Reports, you're reading all the reviews, you're watching the videos, you're talking with people who have the car, and when you go on that lot, you understand that you're there to fight for every cent. You're there to negotiate. And so this merchant man is not going out there just randomly, you know, being, allowing his arm to get twisted every which way by the slick salesman on the lot. This guy was doing his homework, and he was intentional about finding the deal. Last year around Black Friday time, I was in somewhat of a similar circumstance. I was researching a computer for my wife. It's one of those situations where I came home one day, and I had this bright idea. I said, sweetheart, I think you need a new computer. No, I don't. I can use your computer. No, no, I think you need a computer. (laughs) I would love to buy you a computer. So we had this conversation, and so Black Friday was around the corner, and you know what happened? I had my spreadsheet busted out, all the features. We went into Best Buy, and we were, you know, pounding those keyboards, tapping the screen, checking the brightness, reading the reviews, and we had a budget, and we were trying to keep our money within the budget, but we spent weeks for a computer. And what does the pearl of great price represent? Jesus tells us, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And I say all of this to make this one point, and that is, compare the effort we exert in researching the latest purchase, be it the latest computer, car, house, clothes, camera, toy, whatever you want, Put it in there. The amount of time and effort and energy researching that, compare that with how much effort you spend in seeking the kingdom of God. We open the Bible in the morning and we say, oh, I don't have much time. I'll just read whatever. Or we say, oh, Jesus will understand. I'm busy today. It was a late night. This merchant man is giving us the illustration of what it takes to obtain that pearl, the kingdom of heaven. It takes intentional effort. We got to study, investigate, research. We got to put forth some effort because nobody is going to wander into the kingdom of heaven accidentally. No one is going to be arm twisted into making a decision for Jesus. The decision is only going to happen when we set our mind to it. There's a familiar passage. We sing the song, Seek ye first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, what does seek ye first the kingdom of God looks like? It looks like this merchant man. And so how did this merchant man know that he wanted to buy that pearl? Well, he's got to know how much it's worth ahead of time. And we can only identify the worth of the pearl if we had done our research first. You know how it is. Sometimes you go to a store. It might be a closeout store. Or you go to a thrift store, and you don't know what things are worth. Maybe you go to someone's garage sale or yard sale, and they're selling all of this junk, and you just think, oh, it's all junk. But maybe buried within that junk is a pearl or a diamond that's worth millions, but we will never know it if we had not spent the time to study and to seek for ourselves. That leads us to the next question. So now we understand this was a merchant man. He was a businessman, an investor. He was seeking diligently for the pearl. He understood the value. And so we asked him the question, so why were you willing to spend so much? Why were you willing to spend so much for one pearl? Logical question, right? But I believe that merchant man would spin that question around and say, you know what, you're asking the wrong question entirely. And again, it stems from us not truly understanding the value of that pearl. Because we look at it and we say, wow, that, was, that sure was expensive. I sure hope it was worth it. But this man, I believe, would look at us and say, what are you talking about? This was a screaming bargain. Let me illustrate to you what I mean by that. I mentioned earlier that my wife and I, we were shopping for a computer. We had a budget. Budget was about $600 to $650 for a computer. So we were shopping and trying to find the best deal. But we ended up buying a computer for $700. Now, wait, 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 you're saying, you say that you are cheap, you have a personal finance blog, you help people save money, you broke your budget, right? You said you're going to spend $600, $650, you spent $700. We're going to have to revoke your, uh, you know, your card for being cheap. Well, here, here's the rest of the story. For $600, $650, I could buy a $650 or $600 or $650 computer. But we found a computer that was priced at $700, but it was worth over $1,000. So all of a sudden, the question changes. The conversation now is no longer, why did you spend so much? The question becomes, oh, how did you get such a deal? <laughs> and what I'm trying to say is that is exactly the conversation that we would be having with this merchant man. We'll come to him and say, look, you sold everything you had, 100% of your net worth, everything. How could you spend so much? And he's going to say, do you know what this is? This was worth 10 times. A hundred times, a thousand times more, and it only cost me this much? It was a screaming bargain. And you see, we ask this question, even that question of why would you spend so much, it just reveals to us that we really do not understand the value of that pearl. And why do we not understand that value? It's because we have not sought it. We have not studied and to seek the value he saw an inequity of value. It was mispriced, and he realized it was worth everything he had and more, but that's all he had to give. And objectively, he realized that there is something greater here than merely his own material possessions. And that leads us to another, I believe, logical question we can ask this merchant man. This merchant man went out there, and he sold everything. Right? When it says sell all, it means everything. He cleared out his bank account, liquidated his investment portfolio, his retirement, his kid's college fund. He sold his house, his boat, his car. Everything is on the altar. And we ask him this question. We say, you know what? Um, hmm, where are you going to live? What are you going to eat now? How are you going to pay for your daily necessities? How are you going to take care of your family? And you understand that we can't stretch this parable beyond 
what it was intended to do. But I believe this question illustrates to us an important calculation when we think about the relative value of things. I want to introduce you to another passage. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because when we think about the value of this pearl of great price, yes, indeed, it is costly in a sense. But we have to measure with the right measurements. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. This is the Apostle Paul writing. The Apostle Paul, you got to remember, this was not a man who grew up or just simply lived his entire life in luxury. This was a man who was persecuted severely for the truth. He was shipwrecked in the, in the sea multiple times. He was beaten and left for dead, stoned, betrayed, bitten by venomous vipers. I mean, this guy has been through it all, been in prison. I mean, this is Paul, right? Notice what he says in verse 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our, what's the next two words? Light affliction. Wait a minute. Paul here is saying our light affliction. Your affliction, Paul, does not seem light to me. You gave up everything. You're, you're being betrayed by your countrymen. You are shipwrecked, beaten, physically assaulted, left for dead, bitten by snakes, locked in stocks in the deepest dungeons, and you're saying, you're saying, what is this? Eh, light affliction, just a scratch. I just want to mention, I want to drill that into you because this is what we're trying to, we have to see the context of what this person is trying to say. Paul, in this context of severe persecution, he calls it light affliction, and he says, which is, but, for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In verse 18, this is the key. This is the key. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And this is an important point. Back to the question we asked the merchant man. He went, he sold all he had to obtain this pearl of great price. Yes, it cost him everything. Yes, there is the question of, okay, who's going to take care of me now? What about housing and shelter and food and transportation and gas and all of these things? Yes, but what Paul is saying, Paul, the man who did give it all up, the man who was persecuted beyond words, he says, all of this is merely momentary. All of this is light affliction. And all of this is temporal. It's temporary. It's what we can see, hear, touch, taste, and feel. But what is of eternal value is what you can't see, is what you can't feel, is what you can't physically assess with your senses. And Paul is saying, remember, remember, remember where the true value lies. Even in the world today, even in the world today, one of the biggest problems, particularly of those of us in the Western world, developed world here in America, one of the biggest problems we have, and I'm talking in the personal finance realm as well as other realms, is that we cannot put aside what we see in the here and now to think about the time to come. I mean, we're not even talking about heaven. Heaven is like really advanced. I'm talking about the next paycheck. I've only got $30 left in my checking account. When am I getting paid next? Why do people live that way? It's because we've lost the ability to delay gratification, to think about the temporal only, to think about the future. And you know, there's a word for this, and that is faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so, you know, even when you look at the most successful worldly people in the world, let's say the entrepreneurs, the big CEOs, guys like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs or whatever, in all the biographies that you read about them, one of the most uncanny abilities that these guys have 
is ability to not simply dwell on the here and now. They have the ability to project, if, you, if I can use a spiritual word, to see through the eyes of faith, not merely the here and the now, what I can see, hear, feel, and taste, but project to what can be. And it's a rebuke to us because most of these men are godless, faithless men. And we, as Bible-believing Christians, we who have this thing that God has given to us called faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, we ourselves struggle even worse than they do. And this merchant man with with a pearl of great price is illustrating to us the importance of placing right value on not just the physical, material things that we can see, but on what we cannot yet see. And that's where our faith needs to be strengthened. I want to share this passage with you. This is from the book Desire of Ages, page 115, paragraph 2. Since he lost heaven, this is talking about Lucifer, okay? Since Lucifer had lost heaven, he was determined to find revenge by causing others to share his fall. We understand the great controversy. We understand that this is Satan's M.O. He's out to get others to fall with him, and he knows he has but a short time. But the Desire of Ages goes on, and it goes on to tell us what one of his most successful schemes are. Okay, you ready? One of his best tricks up his sleeves. This he would do by causing them to undervalue heavenly things and to set the heart upon things of earth. Desire of Ages, page 115, paragraph 2, makes it very clear. One of Satan's weapons, one of his most successful ploys to trap us, to make us fall with him, is simply to help us undervalue that which we cannot see, heavenly things, and to place all of our worth and our value on the earthly things. I want to illustrate this point. You're all familiar with Apple Computers, the company. Who started that company? Who started Apple? Steve Jobs. Okay, everybody knows Steve Jobs. I heard the other other Steve, right? There are two Steves. Wozniak. Okay, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Did you know that there was also a third founder of the company? Anyone remember his name? It's good. It's true. There was a third owner, but there's a reason why we don't remember his name. It's not because his name's not Steve. His name was Ron Wayne, Ron Wayne, and he was the adult founder. There were three of them, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were young whippersnappers. Ron Wayne was out in the business world already. He was an engineer, I believe, and he was, I think, in his 40s at the time. He was the one that actually drafted up the founding documents. But the reason why we don't remember who he is is because Ron Wayne sold his entire stake in Apple after merely 12 days, okay? 12 days after the business started, he sold his 10% stake in Apple. Guess for how much? $800. All right. Some of you know where I'm going with this. What percent stake did he have? 10%. Okay, so he sold his 10% stake in Apple, which, by the way, is the most valuable company by market capitalization today. For 800 bucks, he sold it. Do you know how much that 10% stake would be worth today? Well, Apple currently is valued at close to $850 billion dollars. So you do the math. 10% would land him close to $85 billion. To drive this point home, when I first wrote this sermon a while back, that stake was only worth $65 billion. So in the few weeks since I wrote the sermon till now, his 10% would have grown another $20 billion dollars. And to add insult to injury, for the past 40 years, I understand Ron Wayne has been struggling financially. And so I share this story not to say, oh, wow, you know, there's so much money, but to drive home this point. 
Think about that reaction that you just had. You had a visceral reaction, did you not? You have this feeling like, can I slap that man, right? That's what you're thinking. You're thinking, what a shame. Why? Well, we got to cut this guy some slack. He didn't know the future. And the vast majority of technology startups crash and burn. So he might have been the smart guy. He might have been the one that made off with $800 when everybody else lost everything. But here's the point. We don't have that excuse. We have this reaction to a man who gave up 80, 85, whatever, billion dollars. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it's a waste. Yeah, what a shame. But imagine what the angels will say. In the kingdom of glory, when your name is mentioned and they say, he was not willing to pay the price for the pearl. He was not willing to give up that which was hindering him from attaining that pearl of great price. What would the angel say? That guy sold out his eternal treasure for a mere $80 billion. There's no comparison in value. And you say, ha ha, that's funny. I'll never have $80 billion. Yeah, sure, probably so. But how often do we sell out the pearl of great price for something worth far less? Esau sold it all for pottage stew. What would the angels say when they looked down at that young man? He was not willing to pay the price. He would rather date that girl that he knew was not good for him rather than obtain the pearl of great price. That woman would rather prioritize her career for a mere three score and ten years on this earth rather than the pearl of great price. That family was too comfortable in pitching their tents toward Sodom. Rather than moving for the salvation of their souls, the pearl of great price was too costly for them. What would the angels say about us? We thumb our noses at Ron Wayne. We say, oh, you fool. What would the angel say? Look at us and say, you would rather have that fancy car than have Jesus? You would rather continue visiting that website, watching that TV show, rather than have Jesus? Who's the fool? The merchant man gives us the illustration there was no hesitation. There was no prevarication. There was no wondering whether or not the pearl was worth it. He knew it was worth it. And the moment he saw it, he knew he had to buy it. And so, some of you here are now saying, all right, all right, where do I swipe my car? Where do I pay? To whom can I make out this check? I want that pearl. I sure hope we think that. But at this point, we need to introduce a balancing thought to this passage. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 55. Okay, as you're turning there, as you're turning there, you realize that this parable is, is likening the kingdom of heaven, the plan of salvation, if you will, as a financial transaction. It's giving us this picture where we have to go to the marketplace. We have to have an exchange. We pay something to obtain the kingdom of heaven. But wait, wait, wait. Isn't salvation free? Isn't it a gift? Yes, it is. So we have to make sure we maintain the balance of scripture. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 1. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. 
Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So here we have to harmonize two seemingly contradictory concepts in Scripture. The pearl of great price tells us you got to sell all that you have and buy this pearl. It's going to cost everything. But yet here in Isaiah and lots of other places, John 3.16, right? A lot of other verses, God makes it very clear. Salvation, the kingdom of heaven, is free. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. Amen? All right, we've got to make sure we're on the same page here. So how do, we, how do we harmonize these two opposite paradoxical concepts? Okay? I think this is where we have to make sure we understand that when we talk about the pearl of great price, yes, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking a beautiful pearl. Yes. But that pearl is not merely talking about an inanimate object. The pearl is not merely a place. It's not merely a mansion in heaven. It's not merely the gates through which we go into the holy city. The pearl represents a person, Jesus is the pearl. Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except through him. And so when we come to this realization, the pearl is actually a person. Now I think we've got some material to work with. How can it cost everything and yet be a gift? How can it, free, how can it be free but yet be so pricey? How can these two things harmonize? And I think the secret is the word relationship. How many of you here are married? Can I see your hands? All right, this is, this is good. Gentlemen who are married, you of all people will understand this more than anyone else. On your wedding day, when you stood before the pastor at the wedding altar, and you said, I do. On that day, you have experienced what it means to sell all that you have. <laughs> I had a teacher once, my dean in college. He said when he got married to his wife, he said, what's mine is now hers. What's hers? It still hurts. <laughs> but you understand what I'm trying to say. How much did it cost you to buy your wife's yes, I do at the altar? There's going to be some smart Alex out there who's going to give a you know, funny answer. But yes, there's a cost to having the wedding and all that. Yes, I understand that. But what I'm talking about is, is there a price, is there a dollar value at which you can pay your wife and say, okay, if I, if I just up the price, how about instead of $2,000, let us make it $2,500, okay? Will you marry me now? <laughs> Would there ever be this kind of a dollars and cents negotiation for a marriage relationship? No way. But yet, does it cost something? Yes. Gentlemen, does it cost something? Yes. If you're not going to say yes, your wife will say it for you. And this is the point. When we come to a marriage relationship, it's an illustration of that relationship we ought to have with the pearl of great price. When we say, I do to Jesus, that's the day we get lowered into the baptismal tank and we come up bearing his name. Just like when a wife takes on the name of her husband, we take on the name of Jesus Christ when we are baptized. And so we're walking in harmony, in married matrimony. And when we are married to Jesus, there's nothing we could do to change his love for us. There's nothing we can do to recommend ourselves to say, hey, will you marry me now? He wants to marry you now. But once we get married to him, just like in every relationship, it's going to take some work. 
married men and women, does, does having a happy marriage take effort? I only heard like two yeses. All the wives are like, mm. yes. And this is where we have to remember that when we come to Jesus and we accept him as the Lord of our lives and we marry ourselves to him, it's now a relationship. It's not a one-time transaction. And just like for a man and a woman to not just be married one day and then forget about it the next day, it takes a continual walking together. And there are different words for this. It might be called loyalty in one, you know, to some, or uh, devotion to others, or consecration to others. Let's use the word that we've chosen for the weekend, surrender. When we buy the pearl of great price, what is the cost? The cost is the surrender. The continual daily consecration of saying, not my will, but thine be done. The continual decision-making of saying, not what makes me happy the most, but what makes the other person happiest. And that's the substance of this concept. Salvation is free. Yes, hallelujah, Jesus will save us the way we are. Nothing we can do will diminish or increase his love for us. Yes, but once we are married to him, once we accept him, there is a cost. There is a cross to be born. There is a cost to discipleship. And the Bible tells us that we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is where I have to go a step further. And that is that sometimes we have this idea that, oh, if I have to exert effort in my Christian experience, it's legalism. Please. Does it take effort sometimes to be faithful to your spouse? Does it take effort sometimes to not hold that bitterness inside? Does it take effort sometimes to say, I'm sorry? You better believe it. Does it take effort sometimes to not look at other women for men? Sure. Does it take effort sometimes for women to not talk and complain behind the husband's back and to share his fault with other people? Yes, sure. It takes effort to reconcile. It takes effort to not fight in the first place. It takes effort to do all of these things. But yet, when we have a relationship with Jesus, the moment we have to put forth any effort, we say, oh, legalism. It makes no sense. When we live a life for Jesus, Exerting effort to please him does not mean we're trying to earn our salvation. It simply reveals that we love Jesus. You it's like, imagine if there's a young man who is in love with a girl. And the girl is a vegan and he's not. What do you think that young man's going to do? He's going to become vegan so fast, your head will spin. <laughs> and what would we do? We'd pat him on the back. boy, that, you go get her. But oh, 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 I've decided to become a Christian, and Jesus tells me I shouldn't eat certain things. Oh, we don't want to be too extreme. <laughs> don't want to be a fanatic. Don't want to be like those weird people. What's the problem here? If there are two women, a man and woman in love, would anybody say, what, I have to take a whole day off my studies? Take the day off work to spend with her? Why would I want to do that? But yet one day in every seven, God has taken time out of his busy schedule from running the universe to spend with us, and we say, we'd rather go to work. We'd rather spend time watching TV or mowing our lawn. Why is this so difficult for us to understand that, yes, maintaining a relationship with Jesus, yes, it might take some effort, but it doesn't mean we earn anything from it. It simply means that we love Jesus. The Bible tells us that we ought to resist the devil and he will flee from us. That sounds like effort to me. But the effort is not so much in, oh, look at me, Jesus. The effort is, Lord, 
I love you. Help me to do right. Help me to make you happy. Let me please you in all that I do, say, and that I am. The problem with so many Christians today is that we want the crown, but we don't want the cross. We want the prize, but we're not willing to take the yoke. We only want the verses that say salvation is free and without price, but yet we are not willing to accept the ones that say it's going to cost you everything you got. Jesus has to be our Lord and our Savior. Yes, salvation is free. Yes, there's nothing we can do to earn it, but yet it costs us everything we have. The pearl of great price is worth every penny. Ellen White was taken to heaven in her very first vision. This was shortly after 1844, a great disappointment. And there in heaven, under the tree of life, he saw, she saw some saints who had been laid to their graves before October 22. And as they conversed together, those saints who died earlier looked at Ellen White and her company and said, please tell us, what was the greatest trial, the most costly experience you had to pass through in order to make it to this place? Ellen White and her company looked at one another. They fought long and hard. They, they, they tried to conjure up in the most extreme forms, the persecution that they went through, the bitter disappointment, the pain, the loss, the uncertainty, all of these things, they tried to bring it to mind, they tried to verbalize how hard it was, and you know what's the only thing that they could say? Heaven is cheap enough. Heaven is cheap enough. I don't care how much that pearl of great price looks to you right now. The price tag that Jesus has for you is gonna, it may look different for different people. You may look at it and say, I'm going to have to change my career path. That's an expensive price to pay. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I'm going to have to go say I'm sorry to that person that I haven't talked to for so long. That might seem like a very high price to pay. Some of you may have to give up certain vices that nobody knows you have. You think no one will ever know, but Jesus sees you and he says, do you want that or do you want me? And as you contemplate this, as we move into this appeal now, I want to think with you with this parable in a different perspective. And that is, while we might be wrestling with the cost that Jesus might have for us, we have to realize that Jesus has placed a value, value on us. Because that pearl of great price, the parable doesn't simply represent us looking for Jesus as the pearl. It represents Jesus as the merchant man looking for us, the pearl. Just like the merchant man that we read about did not go haphazardly, accidentally, stumbling upon something of value. He went out intentionally seeking after it. He knew exactly what he was looking for. He was not about to be cheated. He saw in you one pearl of great price. And Jesus looking at you, he says, no price is too high. And he looks at us and he doesn't say, oh, I might pay that price. He did pay that price. Unless you think, oh, but he was God. He had the powers of omnipotence. He had the angels on his side comforting him and, and bearing him up lest he dash his foot against a stone. Remember Gethsemane. Not th my will, but thine be done. Jesus wrestled until great drops of blood poured out from his forehead. And as he lay there in anguish, we see what it takes, the cost of our salvation, the cost of purchasing that pearl of 
great price. And lest you think, oh, it's because he's got the sins of the whole world upon him. We're told that if there was just one soul on the face of this earth, Jesus would have done it for them. It was for your sins he died. You, individually, not even necessarily the whole world collectively, individually Jesus saw in us the pearl of great price. Jesus sold all that he had to purchase us the pearl. What are you willing to pay for him? You are worth everything to Jesus. What is he worth to you? I invite you to close your eyes and bow your head. And Father, you know that we have individuals in this room, in this tent, who need to make a consecration to you. This Sabbath morning, there are individuals who are counting the cost in their minds right now. There, there are things in their lives that they know they must give up, they must pay that price to receive Jesus as the pearl of great price. And so right now, while every eye is closed and every head is bowed, I invite those under the sound of my voice who recognize that Jesus is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you know that thing? Yeah. Give that to me. Jesus is talking to some in this room and saying, you know, there's something that you have to give in order to obtain me, all of me. And if that's you out there, I invite you to raise your hands right where you are. Raise your hand. My hand is raised as well. This is a commitment to say, Lord Jesus, there is no price too high for that pearl of great price. Whatever it takes, whatever pain it might cause, I recognize it as simply light affliction. God bless you. God bless you. Father in heaven, you have seen the hands that are raised. You see the desires of our hearts. You know that we are genuine as we seek your help. In our weakness, Lord, take our hearts, for we cannot give it. Change us into your image, for we cannot do that. Give us the faith to value heavenly things appropriately and to put aside the dross and the moth-eaten and the cankered treasures of this world that we might have that pearl of great price today. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.